0: Thank you for coming back after the children's sermon. I appreciate that. That's very, that's very good of you. Just, I should have asked you to act like animals and had the kids guess. It would, probably, would have been, probably would have been better. You know, sometimes uh, when I come in, stuff just doesn't work. Like um, I came in this morning and I had a bunch of things I had to print out and the printer wasn't working. Um, so that, sh- that was an omen. You know that there we're going to be we were going to have some squeaky wheels today, uh, as far as that goes. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to the Book of First John. We're going to continue our study there. And uh, just as a, a way, by way of quick review, here are some of the things that we have seen so far in our study of First John. Like this, for example, I was supposed to unlock the nursery. And I actually walked back there and instead went into my office. And I'm not sure what I did in my office, but I came out of my office and did not unlock the nursery. So hang hang with me today, all right? Let's see if we can let's see if we can get this get this done. So here are some of the things that that we've learned so far that I want us to remember from the book of 1 John. Number 1, God is a light, in him there is no darkness at all. And we talked about how this is a little bit of a problem for us because we as humans are sinful creatures and there is darkness inside of us. So God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. We are sinful and there is darkness in us. And so John tells us that it is Jesus who purifies us and allows us to walk in the light with God. And there were two essential things that we sort of drew from this teaching. The first thing is that in our everyday lives and in everything that we do, we need to live in the full realization of the power of sin in our lives. And what that means is that we need to understand um, that we cannot walk in the light by ourselves. That we are dependent upon Jesus to bring us from darkness into light. And so the image that we present to the world when we talk to them about our faith, when we talk to them about Christianity, is not the image, an image of moral superiority, but rather we want to present the image of never-ending dependence upon God. That no matter what else is going on around us, we depend on God For everything. And secondly, what I love about this is that Jesus is thrust squarely into the center of the relationship between God and man. Jesus is the one who makes the kind of relationship that God wants possible. And we cannot truly be in relationship with God without the reconciling work of Jesus. Thus, the story that people hear from our lips when we talk to them about our faith is that we are not perfect. That we are, in fact, terribly flawed, but we are redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And it is that redemption that defines who and what we are. And it's a wonderful message, but we, we have to move past that simple recognition of our need for Jesus because there was an important question that still stood out in front of us. And that question is, what does it actually look like to walk in the light with Jesus? So it's one thing to say, God is the light, we are in darkness, Jesus brings us into the light, but then we have to ask what that looks like. What are we to do? And so we saw three things from from last week. Uh, We allow our hearts to be transformed by the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus so that his ways are actually written there on our hearts. Secondly, we are to live like Jesus did, John said acting out his values in our life. And one of the primary ways that we do that is by loving other people radically. Loving them not in the way that we would normally love people. John calls us to love people in the way that God loves people, to push ourselves past the boundary of what we are comfortable with or what we're used to or what we even think is possible when it comes to our love. So now, theoretically... We've established a couple of things, where we want to be and sort of what that looks like. And the challenge now for us is actually doing it, is actually living our lives like Jesus, is actually loving other people in a practical way like Jesus. And it's challenging to us for multiple reasons. What John has told us we need to do here, love others like Jesus, this is no Small task. It's no, There's nothing easy about it. And even more troubling, we are never going to be able to accidentally love people like Jesus. Do you get what I'm saying by that? We are going to have to intentionally move to love people in the way that Jesus loved them. Because loving others like Jesus calls for us to be forgiving, calls for us to be accepting, calls for us to be long-suffering, calls for us to persevere. It even calls for us to be willing to forfeit our rights in some cases so that we can love other people. If all of this were not bad enough, which it's pretty rough, We also live in a world that makes it difficult for us to walk in the light with God, a world that challenges us when it comes to loving other people like Jesus. And the world that we live in is in direct competition with God for our attention, for our hearts and for our souls, and it is constantly trying to draw us away from God. so if you have your Bibles open to first John, please turn over to chapter two and here's what John writes next to us. John first John chapter two verses fifteen through seventeen Do not love the world or anything in the world. if anyone loves the world. Love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are grateful for the words that are written to us in your word. God, we are grateful for how they challenge us, how they form us, how they help us to see the kind of life that you would have us to live. Father, as we dig into your word this morning, may our eyes and ears be open to see and hear what you have for us today. And may we be fully present with you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Now... This passage, if you've been here with us over the past several months, this passage probably sounds a little bit familiar because it is just like what we heard from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so um, we have recently covered these uh, these principles in great depth. So I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to be criminally short on this. All right. And if you would like to go back and listen to what we talked about before, I would invite you to do so. But there are a couple of principles that we do need to draw out of this passage to help us get where we're going today. And the first principle is this, and I want to remind you of this for those of you who are here. Um, Love of the world and love of God are two mutually exclusive things. Okay? Let me put it this way. You cannot love both your wife and your mistress true right love of god and love of the world are two mutually exclusive things and the bible uh, often speaks of the opposition between god and the world how they stand apart from one another and you the basic principle is this you 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 cannot love the world and really love God because one naturally opposes the other. And while you may be able to pretend, at some point you're going to be found out as to who you love and where your loyalty lies because since they stand on opposite sides of each other, you are going to be forced to choose between them, between upholding the values of God or upholding the values of the world. You are going to find yourself in that place. So you can only love one of the other. You cannot serve both of them. Furthermore, there's another issue, which this one is really hard for me. Maybe it's hard for you too, and that's this. The world tries to convince us to make decisions that influence our present without paying attention to our future. Heaven, eternal life with God, seems like this far-off idea. This thing that will happen to us someday, whereas our jobs, our houses, our money, the things we have, those are all kind of right-now things. And, And so we find ourselves in this tension about whether we're going to make decisions for right now or for the future. Look again at verse 16. And and look at what John says here. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And he makes a simple point here. First of all, everything that John categorizes as being in the world is not from God. So he's not talking about nature or creation or any of those sorts of things. He's talking about the life that we have here in this place. And here is the problem. We all too easily become slaves to desire for things in this place. Look at how he phrases it. I I find it really interesting. He says, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of, of life. Those are interesting ways to phrase these things because that word in particular, lust, evokes certain kinds of images, certain kinds of ideas. And what it really cuts to is sort of a craving and desire. Lust is not a passive word. It is a word that carries intensity of feeling. And here is the thing about lusting after something, no matter what it is. Lust blinds us. When you lust after something, you are no longer capable of seeing the difference between what is good for you and what is bad for you. You are no longer capable of scanning back and making a godly decision versus an ungodly decision. Lust blinds us to all of those things. And it leads us to this interesting phrase, the pride of life. Now, on one hand, it doesn't sound like uh, the pride of life is such a bad thing. But understand what John is saying. He's saying that these things, the lust of uh, the flesh, the lust of the eyes, you're searching after and being consumed by these things, leads you to be proud in the kind of life that you have here and now. And when you become proud of the kind of life and the kind of things that you have here and now, what are you inherently going to forget about? Your future with God, because you can't love both. You, you can't be consumed by both. and if you are consumed by the world, you will not be consumed by God. So the love of this world tricks us into thinking that we can that what we can have right now is much more important than what we will have in the future. and I have to be honest with you, like we fall for this again and again and again. You know, the moment that you decide, you know, I'm really going to take charge of this and create some sort of separation, it's like your your car breaks down, right? Or your kids call and they need money. Or something goes wrong at work. I mean, it just seems to work that way, doesn't it? That the moment you decide, I am really going to draw some line, I'm going to create some boundaries between myself and the world, the world hears that and comes knocking at your door when we choose the things of this world john wants to make this clear we are not choosing the things of god now at the very heart of this discussion again is jesus and i really appreciate how john does this in this letter whenever he presents problems or issues he always brings the conversation back to jesus Now, it's especially important that for this community that John is writing to, that he bring the discussion back to Jesus, and it was for this reason. The book, the letter, I should say, of 1 John was written to a church or a group of churches that were in crisis. And I mentioned this uh, in in the first lesson, but one of the reasons why they were in crisis is that they were under attack by false teachers. And if you remember, these used to be members of their church that left because the ideas that they had about Jesus were different. And then they actually kind of sent missionaries back into the Christian communities to try to draw people to their way of thinking. And one of the things that sort of characterized their way of thinking was that Jesus was just a man. And he wasn't eternal. He was not the Son of God. And they also believed in this huge difference between spiritual life and physical life. And they believed that as long as you connected with God in an appropriate way, that it almost didn't matter what you did on the physical plane. You could do whatever you want. And so John makes uh, certain here to draw the conversation back to Jesus. We're going to look at verses 20 through 25. And he writes, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. So what does John want us to remember as we're coming through this section? He wants to remind us that the whole discussion, just like everything else we've seen so far, it all pivots on Jesus. Everything circles around him. Jesus is the one who allows us to walk in the light with God when we are in the darkness. We are to live and love like Jesus does and not just like we would. And the truth is found where? In Jesus alone. And if anyone speaks out against Jesus, we have to take this term. You see the term antichrist, right? And what comes to your mind? Maybe like a... Dragon or like some sort of devil or something. But understand what John means here is literally antichrist. Someone who is against Jesus. And he makes this compelling argument or this point that is so clear, that is so clearly drawn. And what he says is either you believe in the truth, which is Jesus, or you believe in something else, which is a lie. Microphone drop. Walk out of the room, right? This is what he does here. So there's something that's really clear to me as we think about our relationship with the world, and that is this. When we claim Jesus Christ, when we call ourselves Christians, we are claiming to live under different rules than the world around us. We are claiming to live a different kind of life Where we value eternity and not the present. Where we will love other people like Jesus does and not just like us. Where we will follow Jesus into all these difficult places that nowhere else would go. And it's clear from the writings of John that this is what God expects from us. It's going to get worse in a minute. So this is what God expects from us. Now, Here's what's really interesting, at least to me. God is not the only one who expects us to live in a different sort of way. The world actually expects it from us too. It does. Now, I know that seems, might seem a little bit weird because I've actually preached from these passages and talked about how the world doesn't want us to be distinct how the world doesn't want us to stand out. But here is is the truth. The world expects that if we are going to call ourselves Christians, we are going to live up to a certain standard. And whether we like it or not, the world around us pays attention to whether we are living up to this standard or not. This happens. And it happened in dramatic form this last week. Um, As you know, if you've paid attention to... Anything. Um, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston and it devastated the area. Uh, even after the storm had stopped and moved on, floodwaters were still rising all over the place. And the damage has been truly devastating. And in the middle of all this destruction, all this loss, all of these terrible things that were going on, an interesting thing happened the eyes of the country turned to a church. Specifically, the Lakewood Church in Houston, and it's Pastor Joel Olstein, who maybe some of you have heard of or read his book or watched him on TV or heard any of those things. Now, this church is huge, okay, absolutely massive. Their uh, auditorium seats 16,000 people. Okay, so it's a big place. And Olstein has written best-selling books and is one of the most uh, influential Christians in America. He's on TV all over the country. And so why were they in the news this last week? They were in the news for a particular reason. When Harvey hit and people started having to move out of their homes, the church did not have an immediate response. Um, they did not open their doors as a shelter, and they weren't doing anything yet in their community and People started to wonder why, so the church responded on Twitter as we do these days um and said that they were dealing with flooding the The issue that came up was that people from the Houston area drove by the church and took pictures. And the pictures that they showed showed that the church wasn't flooded, supposedly. Okay? So then members of the Lakewood Church um, started showing pictures of how the building was flooded. <laughs> this is true this actually happened this last week. This is like a major like mainline discussion as Harvey is blowing through there. Um and then they, uh, the church released a statement and their statement said that the church had been asked by the city of Houston to let other shelters fill up first and then to open their own doors. And so they waited. And I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday uh, they opened up to the public and they became a working shelter. But here's what happened in the meantime. Um, there were countless... Twitter feeds and responses about this church. And in particular, the question was, are they being like Jesus or not? And the question was raised by non-Christians, by Christians. Uh, Some people pointed out, because apparently it's public record, um, how much money Olstein is worth. Um, There were pictures showing up of his very, very expensive house. Uh, out on the outskirts of Houston, um, all these things started to come into uh, I don't know if you know what Snopes is, Snopes.com. Are you familiar with it? If you What Snopes is, is if you ever hear some sort of uh, urban myth or legend, you can go to Snopes.com and it will tell you, here's what's true about this, here's what's not. Within three days, did Lakewood Church flood was on Snopes.com to where people could go and try to find out the truth. Did these people lie about their facilities being flooded? Or were they actually flooded? One article uh, had, that was, again, I think it was through Yahoo News, linked to the Bible. And they actually linked to Matthew 21. And if you clicked on the link, it took you to Bible Gateway, which is a, a Bible website, and it had Matthew 19.21 in every version, all the way down the page. And here's what Matthew 19.21 says. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the implication was clear, right? Here is this wealthy church. Here is this wealthy pastor. And their community is suffering Where are they? Now, the world may not understand what it means to be a Christian. They may think that Christianity is wrong or even foolish when it comes to a lot of different things. You could get into a lot of discussions with people here in Sonoma County about faith and religion, and they will tell you how silly and pointless things are. But there is one thing that is undeniably true, I think. The world believes that if we claim to be Christians, we are going to hold ourselves to a higher standard when it comes to love, sacrifice, material things, attitude, morality, and any number of other items we could list. And whether we like it or not, the world that we live in is more than willing to point out when we fall short. I don't know Joel Olstein. We're not buddies, pen pals, nothing. I know, I've I've reached out and I haven't heard from him. I sent him a Christmas card, you know. (laughs) So I want to be clear. I, I don't know what happened with them this last week. And to be completely honest, I don't know if the criticism they've received is fair. It may very well not, I mean... If the city of Houston asks them to not do this, then are they guilty of the sin of not telling everyone else what they agreed to with the city of Houston so that everybody could relax, right? I don't know. I don't know what happened in all in this case or in this place. But this observation that the Christian community should have done more And should have been at the front lines of this, I have a hard time saying they're wrong. It may not ultimately be fair, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. And here is my point the world expects us, at the very least, To be equal with the efforts of those who do not love Jesus. At the very least. At most, it expects us to far surpass these efforts. And it was difficult to read this week about how people were buying boats and huge trucks to take into the Houston area. A furniture store owner, maybe you've heard this, opened, I think he has two locations, opened both locations to anyone who needed to come in and risked his entire stock of everything being ruined and he didn't care. (laughs) He took pictures smiling out in front of his store. So this question of where is the church While it might be easy for us to sort of want to shrink from that and say, oh, but it's not fair and they don't know and they don't understand and this is a da-da-da-da-da, maybe we should take a moment and say, you know what, perhaps their expectations of us are not so far off base. Now before we say, well, the world holds us to an impossible standard, which might even be true, let us look at what John has to say about our behavior and how we conduct ourselves. This is the part where I said it gets worse. Okay, so this is from chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Speaking of Jesus. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. How do you feel about that particular passage? It's a little, a little uncomfortable. Dear children, do not anyone lead you astray? The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed Remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So we're going to talk about expectations for a moment. And the question that I want you to very, very seriously consider is this. What are God's actual expectations of us? What are God's actual expectations of us? Now there are some important things that, that, that John acknowledges here that help inform our answer. The first thing is this. Sin is a dividing factor between God and God. And, those who, and, and and us and those who sin find themselves on the wrong side of God every time. And, and according to John, sin, by its definition, is lawlessness. Lawlessness. Lawlessness is not an accidental breaking of a rule, okay? In order for someone to be defined as lawless, they have to intentionally reject what they know to be right or true. It is a willful rejection of and an active disobedience against God's moral standard. That is what sin is. And John goes so far as to say this attribute of being sinful makes someone a child of what? of the devil. Things just got real, right? You can be a child of God or you can be a child of the devil. And we're uncomfortable with this level of distinction because surely there has to be some sort of middle ground. But John means these words that he writes. Again, in part because he was writing to those who were indifferent to sin. Well, as long as I believe in God, it doesn't matter what I do. They believe that they can engage in all kinds of sinful activities and still be in relationship with God. But John believes that sin is not simply something that is wrong, that sin is willful disobedience against God's will. Therefore, when someone practices sin, they are living in opposition to God. And what have we already learned throughout this book? You cannot be in the light and the dark. You cannot love God and love the world. You have to be on one side or the other. Therefore, you will either be a child of God and be righteous, or you will keep sinning and be in open rebellion against God. So John takes things to the next logical step. Jesus came to take away our sins. There is no sin in Jesus. If one is in relationship with Jesus he or she will not be living in a life of sin. If you are in relationship with Jesus, you will not be living in a state of sin, but in a, st- in a state of a word that makes me very uncomfortable, sinlessness. A state of sinlessness. Looking again at verses 9 through 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So what are God's expectations of us? Does does John really believe that we can stop sinning? Does he believe that? The answer is, fortunately, I guess, no. Remember what he said in in chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So here's a question that we have to think about a little bit, okay? it's a tough one. I I don't know how to give you an easy answer to this. But John recognizes that we are sinners. Yes? And he recognizes that the answer to our sin is who? Jesus. That is the answer to our sin is Jesus. But then he says, once we live in relationship with Jesus, what is our life characterized by? It is not characterized by sin. I'll tell you that much. It is characterized by a different kind of living. It is characterized by a higher standard in what we do and how we act and how we treat other people. John is attempting to describe a way of life a character trait, a prevailing lifestyle. We know that we will sin, and we know that we are reliant on Jesus, but make no mistake about it, God expects our behavior to be godly. He expects us to be like Jesus. He expects that if we are going to call ourselves Christians and carry the name of Jesus out into this world, then we will be different than the world around us and we will hold ourselves to a different standard. God expects us to give every effort to do what is right and to represent Him in this world. And grace, the love of Jesus Christ, is there when we fail because we are going to fail. But we do not walk out of here as those who believe we are going to fail in this. We walk out of here knowing that, yes... Jesus covers over our failures, but through the power of God, we can walk out of this place and be people who are empowered by the Spirit to live a God-filled life. A God-filled life. You might be tired of me harping on this particular point, but it's not my fault John keeps writing it. <laughs> what is the capstone to this? Loving other people. Again, he comes with this. The, the end of this discussion about sinlessness and, and what you do, he doesn't then talk about morality. He doesn't list things for us. He says, well, it all comes down again to how you love your brother or sister. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. You do not belong to God if you do not love your brothers and sisters in a real demonstrative way. And as crazy as it is, this is the problem that I think came to the front this last week. In the aftermath of the storm, there were countless stories of amazing things that people did to love those around them. But the one story that people were looking for didn't happen. Or it didn't happen when they thought it should happen. And it maybe didn't happen for all these reasons. But here's what I want us to understand. The world is not wrong to expect us to be on the front line of loving other people. It's not wrong. Because by the power of Jesus. Through his grace and forgiveness. If we are going to be like him at all. We will be on those front lines. Without being asked. Without being told we have to. We will be there because we love Our brothers and sisters. And we may not love the world, but we love the people in the world. And the one thing we want more than anything else for them is to come to know the love of Jesus Christ that we ourselves have experienced. Which means, church, that we have to act and love dynamically in a way that communicates something, in a way that takes us past, you know what, that's a good dude, (laughs) to this place that says, that person loved me in a way that only God could love me. Can we be those kinds of people in this world? Well, God expects it of us. And God wants us to give every effort, everything that we have to be like his son, Jesus. Who lived and breathed and ate with those who had nothing. With those who were sick, with those who were rejected, with those who were unloved. And he did that so that they would experience the love of God. When the world calls us out for lacking love, may we not be so proud as to ignore them and to say they don't understand us and to say that they're being unfair because whatever standard they have for us pales in comparison to what God is asking from us. To give our all, everything we have, and he'll supplement that with his spirit, with grace and forgiveness, so that this world might know about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus, which overcomes our many failings. God, we recognize that we are sinners, that we need this redemption that Jesus has to offer, that we will always need the redemption that Jesus has to offer. But God, may we be convicted this morning that you are not calling us to live a life that is characterized by continuing, ongoing failure. But instead that we are called to live a life that is characterized by great and deep love and compassion for people around us. God, you do call us to a higher standard, to live, to act, to speak, to love in ways that this world will not be capable of doing or performing. So God, may our eyes be open to see what frontier of love you want us to explore. And will you give us the strength of heart, the conviction of belief to do something about telling this world who Jesus is, the great lover of our souls. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in a dynamic way, who wants your life to be filled with great joy and blessing and peace, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.